0: This week, we're on question 17 of the New City Catechism. And as uh, weeks previous, I will read the question, and together we will read the response. What is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator of our hope and happiness, significance, and security. Before we pray, I want to give a plug for... Piper's newest book, Providence. At least I think it's his newest. He may have written three more since that one came out. But uh, if you look up for some easy reading, seven hundred pages, you can knock that out. Um, but when I say I've begun reading it, I'm like page four of chapter one. So, uh, and I've been reading on it for a couple weeks. So, but in that, he's defining providence as he's using it in the book. Of course, and he references uh, Abraham, God providing the sacrifice for Isaac when Abraham is about to lay the knife to Isaac. And and Abraham calls that place Jehovah, which means God will provide. But the the Hebrew translation of provide means to see. So it's God will see, or you will see. So that's a little bit different than what we think, and that's Pipers going through the process of explaining that. But because God is who he is, he is the I am if he makes something so brings it to pass you will see it's not like well you'll see maybe it's god did it you will see and that's definitive because he is god it's it's, he compares it to our idiom of i'll see to it that that gets done or or i'll see i'll take care of it but when god the i am takes care of it we know we will see so um, I don't know why that doesn't really have anything to do with our catechism. But I just that encouragement of when God says he'll do it, it's going to be done. And I think we can take comfort in that. And also, uh, great read if um, you need 700 pages to knock out in the next few months. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, that you provide. You do it. You will see to it. Um, Father, and and, uh, though we work diligently, hopefully diligently to understand your word, Father, you've given us your Holy Spirit uh, who promises to teach us concerning all things. And you've given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And Lord, I just pray that we would trust you, uh, that we would not worship the created thing, but that we would worship the creator, uh, that we as Christians would lay aside things uh, that your word says, the sins that ensnare us, Lord, and that we would push on, Father, that we would focus on you, uh, seek you first. Lord, your word is full of commands to trust you. You are the creator, Father. You have revealed yourself to us, and and we are without excuse. Uh, And Lord, this this country, this world um, needs you. God, we, it's easy for us to get uh, wrapped up in the here and now into our little worlds and what we think is important, things that take place in our home, at our office, workplace, in our town, our state. Uh, we think our country sometimes is the center of the universe. Lord, it's so much bigger than that, Father. You are so much bigger than that. And I pray that you would help us to see beyond our little troubles, And focus, Lord, on you. You don't tell us to only worry about the little things. You tell us to be anxious for nothing. Uh, Father, I pray that that for each person here, that our anxieties would be taken away. That we would give them to you. That we would, uh, with boldness and confidence in you, who will provide, who will see. I pray that we would do that. Give us that strength and encouragement. Help us to encourage each other because it's easy to to say that. And, Lord, when it comes down to actually having to do it, and and because I've said it now, I'll probably be tested on that, Lord. But I pray that you would help us to be encouraging to one another uh, that we serve the living God, Jehovah Jireh. Uh, I pray that uh, we would rest in that confidence, Lord. Pray for Kevin as he comes up. Uh, teach us from your Word. I just pray for rich blessing on his speech and on our hearing and on the message. Lord, we thank you. Uh, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Our, our scripture reading today will be from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. Mark 10: 32 through 45. This is the Word of God. baptism with which I am baptized they said to him we are able and Jesus said to them the cup that I drink you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared and when the ten heard it they began to be indignant at James and John and Jesus called them to him and he said to them You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the water of our God will stand forever."
2: All right. <clears throat> Thanks, Chris. <clears throat> well, um, Frederick Nietzsche, I'm pretty sure I'm saying that wrong, uh, but he said that what distinguishes man from animals uh, is not just our ability to think, but the desire for power, to, to climb the ladder, uh, to be respected. Uh, and if you know anything about Nietzsche, whatever, I'm really i of saying it wrong. <laughs> if you know anything about this guy, he is no friend of the faith, right? He was an atheist. But he's probably right about this, about this idea about what, what, what makes us different from animals is not just that we, the, the thinking part, it's this ambition that we have. The, the prophet Jeremiah, he wrote that the heart is deceitful above all things. And so that means that sometimes we can think we are being humble, but we're actually being prideful. And sometimes we we think our motives are good and right, but what is driving us might be more selfish ambition. And I, I might be more aware of this than you guys, because I'm in ministry for the last 20 years. I can tack a Bible verse onto a lot of things that I do that are really just a, might be just a selfishly ambitious heart that's about me. And so, so we have we all have a nose for glory. We know where it's at, where it's not at where there will be recognition, where there won't be recognition, and we can be painfully aware when it is lacking in us. And we all have different people we're trying to impress, different ways we measure success in doing well, and, we, and so we're all operating on this one way or the other, aware of it, unaware of it, we're all just kind of sick with this. You know, in, in college I had a buddy, and, uh, and he was loud and obnoxious, a bit like me maybe, um, and one weekend, it was kind of a dead weekend. You college students know about this. I, I loved these weekends. It's when, you know, to me the big weekend, the big football game, what's going on. I didn't like those as much. My favorite weekends was just like it'd be like two or three of us just kind of go hang out. Well, anyway, so uh, so it's me, this loud and obnoxious guy, and his buddy that he grew up with, and we're out, and um, and this this guy is being uncharacteristically pleasant, and uh, and and being I wasn't a great guy when he was not around. I mentioned to his friend he grew up with. I was like. Is it just me, or is he being very pleasant this weekend? I was kind of a jerk, but uh, but anyway. And he said, "Oh man, he is just the best when he's not trying to impress anybody." That's true of me. I mean, you know, th- this guy's personality m- might have been more loud and and vibrant th- than mine. I think I think a lot of people could say that of Kevin Shoemaker. Like he's he's pretty okay when he's not trying to impress people. Maybe people could say it of you too. I think I'm at my worst when I'm trying to be impressive. I mean, we all have these little things that kind of come back to mind, maybe in recent history and long history, where we just cringe at things we said or, or did. And so many of mine are when I'm trying to kind of humble brag, and I just think back, i just like, that was not hidden. That was so, so obvious what you're trying to do there. But the heart is deceitful. I really care about what people think. Um, and look, Sometimes I'm very aware of myself I'm trying to impress people. And other times, by some miracle, I'm, I'm not trying to impress anybody and I'm almost forgetful of myself. I'm so much happier when I'm not trying to impress anybody, when I'm just kind of being me, when I'm not trying to manage the perception of me. So here's our problem. We are drawn to significance, to respect, admiration, or maybe to use the word glory but we're called to service. And and you might think that I might be kind of pitting against uh, 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 significance and service against each other, And, and I don't want to do that because I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I do think the Scriptures do teach an order to it all. And if we're seeking significance, we're probably going to be bad at the service part. And if we're seeking significance primarily, we might not have the space in our minds or imaginations about how we might be able to serve other people. We just almost can't see other people. We become so lost in how we're being perceived. But if we seek humble service, we might get significance thrown in. One thing to know about glory is is glory is actually in our future. But in order to have a good theology of glory— We need to have a good theology of the cross. And we have to unlearn our natural disposition towards personal glory and move towards humble, even easily forgettable service. And this doesn't happen naturally. We're going to have to work about it, work at it, we're going to have to think about it. So today what I want to do is I want to consider um, what we're called to and what we're drawn to. I want to consider first what James and uh, John were drawn to, and then secondly, what Jesus Calls us to so first, James and John were drawn to significance. So Jesus and the disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem, and in verse thirty three we read Jesus say this: "See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him." And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus is foretelling what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He's going to die, and it's going to be ugly. But after three days, he's going to rise from the dead. And after Jesus says this, James and John approach Jesus and say, Teacher, we want you to do do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand, and one at your left in glory. In other words, they come up to him and they say, hey, that's a bummer and all about how you're going to die and it's going to go down really bad. But is this about time to ask a favor? And before I before you answer that, can you just go ahead and give me a yes? I mean, these guys coming up, Jesus tells them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, it's going to be ugly. They say, we'd like to make a request of you and say yes. I mean, these guys are a bit bold. And look, I'm kind of caricaturing what they're doing, but it's not too far off. There's something really big that's going down with Jesus. Jesus gave them a preview into the biggest event in history, what all of human history at this point has been leading to is the cross. And Jesus just said, it's on deck, and they're making it about themselves. And I so wish I didn't relate to James and John here. I just like can uniquely make anything about me. And and I even now, I know everything is about Jesus and about His glory, but just can't help making things about me. And I'm assuming you're all the same way. So James and John are under the impression that Jesus is about to enter into glory. They believe that the Messianic age is about to begin, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, uh, the Anointed One, the King. Uh, and, and they might imagine Jesus going into Jerusalem, The way that we might imagine entering into heaven. That that everything's about to be made right, and we're about to enter paradise. And, And they aren't entirely wrong here. They're not entirely wrong about glory in the future. Really, they're just early and a bit egotistical about glory. The problem is that they have a strong theology of glory and a weak theology of the cross. And look, we need to have a theology of glory. That really is our future, and we aren't wrong to think about it. Many of you are familiar with the golden chain of salvation in Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So all Christians are on the same process. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. Some theologians kind of boil this down to, to three stages, to justification, Sanctification and glorification. We spent a lot of time on the first two justification and sanctification, and maybe not much on glorification. Uh, and we might shy away from glorification because it's so easy to get ourselves lost in that. But, but look, we need to understand that we will be glorified with Jesus, and not only will we be glorified with Jesus, but we will rule with him as James and John allude to here. And in 2 Timothy 2, 12, we we read, if we endure, we will also reign with him. So what is in the future of a Christian is that they will be glorified and that they will rule the world with Christ. So being with Jesus in glory and sharing that glory and ruling with him in that glory, that is something in our future. We aren't wrong to to think about it, to daydream daydream about it or to want it. And the glory... Of of that moment is not worth comparing to the, the the silly ideas or ambitions that we have now in this life, and it makes our current ambitions really seem silly. Like significance now, like when you think about what the glory will be when God makes all things new, glorifies us, we reigning with Christ in the new heaven and new earth, and then now significance is wrapped up in these these way lesser things. Like right now, we can when we think we daydream about glory, it might be about how we look, what our bodies are like. It might be about how work is going, what you're doing, how much success you're having or your family's having, or how much money you're making. These silly things compared with the glory that is to come. And so the the issue is not so much that James and John desire glory and honor as much as it's just misplaced, which is the case with us. And it's interesting here that, that James and John are not rebuked by Jesus. I feel like this would be a great time to lay into James and John, right? To be like, I just said I'm about to die, and you're asking for a favor. You're so self-absorbed. Get over yourself. Quit making everything about you. This is a great time to lay into James and John, but that is not what Jesus does, is it? Look at verse 38. He says, you don't know what you're asking. The reason Jesus says this is because they have a strong theology of glory and a weak theology of the cross. So Jesus doesn't rebuke them for having glory in mind. He simply tells them they don't know what they're asking for. They don't know what they're asking for because they don't know that the cross precedes glory. So while James and John are drawn towards glory, Jesus calls them to humble and sacrificial service, And he basically gives them the same calling that he has to lay down his life for others. So secondly, let's talk about Jesus here. Jesus came to sacrificially serve. So let's read further how Jesus responded in verse 38, chapter 10, verse 38. Jesus Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. So first, what is the cup that he will drink? Many of you are probably thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane, rightly so, where Jesus prays about the cup. He says, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Get not what I will, but what you will. So this is right before the cross. We're talking about the crosses coming up. How is this related? And why did he use this phrase cup? Is this something that Jesus made up in the moment, or is it something else? Well, something rooted in the Old Testament, in particular, Isaiah 51, 17. It tells us what this cup that Jesus is praying about being removed is. So Isaiah 51, 17 says this, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk it to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. So when Jerusalem came under God's wrath, they drank from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, and they drank it to the dregs. And listen to what God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 22, 15 and 16. He says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it, they shall drink and stagger and be crazed because the sword that I am sending among them. So the cup here, the cup of the wine of the wrath of God is the wrath that is to come, and in particular the sword that God is sending. So when Jesus says that he's going to drink from a cup, he's referring to drinking to the dregs the wrath of God. And what about baptism? Why does Jesus talk about baptism here? Is he talking about you know, like, like he, when he was baptized with John, or is he talking about something else? I think he's talking about something else. Uh, in Luke 12, 50, he says, uh, Jesus says this, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So that's after his baptism with John, and he's talking here about the cross. So the baptism he's, re- he's referring to is God's wrath, where he's going to the cross, and he's in great distress until it happens. So Jesus asked uh, James and John if they can drink from the cup that he will drink, and if they're willing to be baptized with the baptism that he will be baptized with. And how did James and John respond? James and John, can you drink from this terrible cup? To which they say, sure. (laughs) I said, I don't think you get it, James and John. You don't know what this cup is. You don't know what this baptism is. I don't think they get it. But Jesus tells them that they will drink from the cup. They will be baptized with the baptism Jesus is facing. In other words, they will be persecuted to the point of death. And James and John are slow here, but they're going to get this. They're eventually going to get it. A theology of glory can be taught. But often, the theology of the, of the cross, that's got to be caught. you got to go through it you can read books on suffering but, but you don't really get it until you go through it now back to their question about this sitting on the right and left Jesus tells them it's not his to grant who sits on the right or left and at this point in the conversation the disciples are starting to get upset and so, so what you have here is James and John are kind of making a a power play uh, for, for status they're kind of pull Jesus off to the side they're trying to get Um, some, some recognition to be kind of maybe the top two guys. And here you have a great picture of the human condition, don't you? Like Nitschke said, what separates animals from humans is the desire for power, respect, and to be exalted by others, or maybe at least just be better than a few others. One thing to notice here is that somebody's left out. If you know about Jesus and the disciples, so there's kind of the, there's the multitudes, then there was 70 that were kind of with them, then there's the 12. We all know about the 12. But did you know with the 12 there was kind of an inner circle of three? It was James, it was John, and it was Peter. And isn't it interesting when you think about the twelve? That there was a group within the twelve, and that maybe there was three. And then the three, they went to two. And they were asking for favors, for special recognition. So Peter's on the outs here, along with the rest. I wonder if Peter was maybe even more offended because he felt like, I think I'm really kind of, I should be on the right or the left, not James and John. And it's interesting that even with the circle of 12 disciples, there was positioning for power, positioning for recognition, for status. And among the 12 disciples, there was tension about about where they ranked. Isn't it interesting that even in a group as small and as specific as the 12 disciples, they're arranged groups within with insiders and outsiders. And I know we've all been there. We all compare ourselves to others. We daydream and talk about how we're better. Um, as as like When we were kids, maybe it was with sports and who likes who and grades. And then as adults, we find all new ways of comparing ourselves to others, and it's depressing how much this motivates us, right, and how aware we are of this, and you will probably never live to see a day where there aren't little groups that form here, there, and everywhere, and you will at some point inevitably feel, and I'm just kind of on the outs. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, he said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. So Jesus is seeing this with his 12 disciples, and he's having none of it. So he calls them to him, and he says this. He says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying the, the, the way the world operates, trying to find significance by being more, doing more, or having more than others, That's the antithesis of following Jesus. So he says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Does that sound familiar to you? If you were here last week, I I hope it does. That's the whole idea of the sermon that the first will be last and the last first. The Christian experience done right should be one where we are seeking humble, easily forgettable, sacrificial service. Rather than being eager to validate ourselves by our accomplishments, our status, our looks, our performance, the way the, the rest of the world seeks, respects, seeks respect, Christians should, should seek out truly humble, easily forgettable, sacrificial service. And this is what Jesus modeled for us. Jesus is the name above all name. Every knee on heaven and earth will bow to him. He is the one to whom and through whom all things exist, and when he showed up on the scene where all glory was due his name, he didn't lead with that. Instead, what he lead with? He led with service. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When he could have come in power to take out sinners like us, instead he took the cup, Our cup, the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it down to the dregs. Y'all, that's what our God is like. That is who our God is. He didn't come and, and, and wipe us out. He came and took the cup of God's wrath. He came not to be served, but to serve. And look here, God made us in his image. And not only that, for us Christians, through the Holy Spirit, He is making us more and more like Christ. And for you, Christian, you shouldn't just be more like that. You are like that. If the Spirit of Christ lives in you, that's what you're more like. It might be hidden underneath with some bad ideas, bad habits, and some unbelief, but that is who you are in Christ. That's the Spirit of Christ in you. And how happy will we be to lay down the heavy unending burden of comparing ourselves with others laying down the need to be validated or being frustrated with others not serving you well not recognizing you when you're truly doing good and people aren't recognizing aren't seeing it wouldn't it be nice to lay that down and instead pick up the happy task of humbly serving others and being just as pleased when it's easily overseen or forgettable And and, and doing so in such a way that by God's grace, and it might even just be like lightning flashing in the night, we actually forget about ourselves for a moment. Because isn't that when we're at our best, when we've kind of forgotten about ourselves? And isn't that when we're the happiest? We're not trying to make a name for ourselves, but instead just trying to bless another soul. What if we made it our mission in life not to be served or recognized, but simply to serve? The more unrecognized, the more forgettable, the better. How might we be, how might we be relieved of the tyranny of wanting others to serve us, to recognize us, to respect us, or to need us? How might we be free? How, how, what might we be free to do with that? How might we be free to love others? I pray that God would give us such freedom. That the same way He gave Jesus, that in the same way that Jesus gave Himself away for us, that we would gladly and with great joy give ourselves away to Him. Let's pray. Father, we see that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. We were unworthy sinners who've received grace upon grace. You've given us his spirit that we can share in your sufferings and even share in your glory. Would you help us to have a theology of glory that is not void of a theology of the cross? Would you help us to serve uh, and to to know the freedom of not trying to uh, position ourselves for recognition or status or anything else, but simply humbly, humbly serving you and serving others as you did for us. In Jesus, in your name that we pray, amen.